Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Annie Murphy-Paul, an award-winning science writer whose work appears in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, and more. She's the author of several books, including Origins, which investigates how the nine months before birth shape our lives, and The Cult of Personality Testing, which explores the implications of popular and sometimes flawed personality tests. Her most recent book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, which explores how we can tap the intelligence that exists beyond our brains. Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Hey, thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're super glad to have you here, Annie. And the rest of us often think of thinking as a process that happens entirely within our heads. But in your book, The Extended Mind, you write about recognizing and leveraging the cognition that takes place beyond our brains, in our bodies, in our surroundings, and in our relationships. Before we get into what that means, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in other kinds of thinking? It was a long and winding road, that I can tell you. I had started to focus my research and reporting and writing on the science of learning, actually. And I'll admit up front, it was me search, you know, because I had two school age kids and was very interested in how they were learning and how their teachers were teaching them. I was roaming around the science of learning space and finding lots of interesting findings and studies, but not a big idea that could pull it all together. That's what excites me as a writer. And that's what I was looking for, an idea that could kind of hopefully transform the way we look at the world, look at ourselves, in this case, look at how thinking and learning operate. And I found that idea in, of all places, a philosophy journal. The article was called The Extended Mind. Two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, had written this article. And the first line of that article was, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And that was a really interesting question to me because I had been reading very widely in all these different disciplines, including embodied cognition, the idea that we think with our bodies and situated cognition, the idea that where we are affects the way we think and socially distributed cognition, the idea that thinking doesn't happen inside individual brains so much as it happens among and between people. So when I came across this idea of the extended mind, which by that Clark and Chalmers meant that thinking isn't necessarily limited to the skull, to the brain, it's spread across the rest of our bodies, our physical surroundings, our relationships with other people. That just seemed to me like the big idea that could pull together all these disparate research findings in the science of learning and cognition that had been so interesting to me. Annie, most of us fool ourselves that we can do a thousand things at once. And you write that the human brain has firm limits on what it can do, how much it can remember, how much it can focus, and so on. And that our culture now regularly exceeds these limits. Can you give us an example? And how do we know when we're asking more of our brains than their natural limits allow? Yeah, I think this is a really important point to make because we're told all the time by popular science writers like me uh, who write about the brain that the brain is so amazing and so extraordinary and it's the most 
complex object in the universe and things like this, all of which may well be true, but it's also true that the brain is this quirky, limited, idiosyncratic biological organ that evolved to carry out tasks that are very different from the tasks that we ask of it every day in our schools and our workplaces. So I think we wouldn't have to reach very far to find examples of the brain reaching its limits. Every time we forget something important or we lose focus and get distracted or we encounter a problem that is just too tricky for us to solve. We tend to blame ourselves as if our brains were just not good enough. But actually, these limits that are built into the brain, they're universal. They're just a product of the nature of the organ. And I think it's reassuring to realize that and to realize that what we need to do in a situation like that is not blame ourselves or sort of flog our brains to keep working ever harder, but instead to bring in resources outside the brain to kind of help the brain out a little bit, like our bodies, like our spaces, like our relationships. And that can allow the brain to overachieve, to do more than the biological brain can do on its own. So let's talk about those extra neural resources for a moment. So you've put those resources in four categories, technology, the body, physical space, and social interaction. Mm -hmm. And we're curious about how each of these can help us you know, as you put it, think beyond our brains. We're also curious about the implications of the extended mind for schools and libraries and museums and all the other places where young people learn. So let's start with the first category, technology, which is probably the one that most of our listeners are most familiar with. You know, we know, for example, that no one has to memorize phone numbers anymore. Mm -hmm. But how else can learners think with technology? That example about the cell phone remembering our phone numbers for us is often an example that I use because it's so easily understood and, and grasped by all of us. It's something that we all do every day. I think the challenging and interesting question regarding education is how much do we want our students to be offloading their mental functions onto devices and how much do we want them doing with their biological brains? And it, it's not an easy question because in a world where it is possible to Google facts at a moment's notice, we have people asking teachers and parents and even students asking, do I really need to, do, do students really need to memorize anything anymore? That would be one way of offloading mental functions onto technology. But in many cases, we don't actually want students to be using technology in that way. You know, I always use the comparison to learning a foreign language. You know, if you had a device that allowed you to translate each word that you needed to use as you were speaking a foreign language, are you then able to speak that language? We wouldn't say that you were fluent in that language by any means, um, because in order to be fluent in that language, you need to have a very large amount of information, you know, the vocabulary of that language, the structure and grammar of that language, the idiom of that language stored in your own brain. And that's the case for a lot of what we want our students to learn. We actually need that to be stored on, you know, the original hard drive, which is our biological brains. But there are many occasions on which it makes sense to offload students' mental functions onto technology, and we need to be really intentional and thoughtful about when those occasions arise. And we also need, of course, to be aware of the fact that technology, even as it extends our minds, can also contract them in the sense that they can be distracting, 
they can cause our natural or native abilities to kind of atrophy if we offload in a way that's not intentional and not thoughtful that we're not aware of. So this is a question that I think teachers and students and school leaders are really going to have to think very carefully about as we move into a world where technology is increasingly integrated into our thinking processes. We have to think really carefully about what do we want to have stored in our biological brains and what do we want to offload onto technology? And, you know, I have more questions than answers about this particular question, but I do think it's one that's going to be increasingly pressing. And Annie, you also write about thinking with our bodies. Mm -hmm. You write that our bodies can process information that's even more complex than what our minds can handle, and that they do so in some cases much faster than our brains. So what does that mean? We tend to identify ourselves with our conscious minds, and yet our conscious minds are really only a small piece of the whole. There's all kinds of mental processing that's going on at a non-conscious level and all kinds of patterns that we encounter in our daily lives, our daily experience, that are stored, processed and stored on this non-conscious level. And yet we do possess that information. We do have that knowledge, which brings up the question of, well, how does one get access to all that? And the answer is really the body. These internal signals and cues, there's a fancy scientific word for that, which is introception that refers to our awareness of these internal signals and cues. It's our introceptive faculty that alerts us to moments when we're encountering patterns and experiences that we've seen before and perhaps have some stored information about. So if you're feeling butterflies in the stomach or a tightening in your chest or you, you feel that your heart rate is accelerating, that is effectively the body tapping you on the shoulder or tugging you on the sleeve and saying, pay attention, you know, this is something you need to address, you need to prepare yourself for. Unfortunately, in our culture, our Western culture, we tend to separate mind and body as if they are separable, which they're really not. And we tend to think that when we have challenging mental or academic or intellectual work to do, what we need to do is sort of put the body aside and quash those internal signals when really we want to be cultivating those and checking in with those and not ever forgetting that we have a body, you know, which is easy to do and is actually encouraged by our school and our workplace cultures. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Annie Murphy-Paul, the acclaimed science writer and author of several books, including most recently, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie, something that's gotten renewed attention in recent years after being, I think, somewhat neglected or at least taken for granted is the importance of physical space when it comes to learning. So mm -hmm. we see more and more schools redesigning their spaces. They're thinking about everything from lighting to furniture to the actual spatial layout of the classroom. Can you tell us why does physical space matter and are there ways to optimize that space in ways that aid learning? I find myself thinking about a very common metaphor that we use almost all the time to refer to the brain. It's embedded in our language. We find ourselves referring to it even without meaning to. And that is the metaphor that compares the brain to a computer. And we use words like bandwidth and memory. And we think of our brains as kind of second rate computers, which really is underselling the nature of human intelligence. But one of the ways in which that comparison of a brain to a computer is misguided or inaccurate is that, you know, a, a computer 
functions the same no matter where it is. This laptop that I'm using to talk to you guys on today, it operates the same here in my home office as it would if I took it outside, you know, to work in a park. But the human brain is very different from that. It's really exquisitely sensitive to context. And whether we're inside or outside, whether we're in a space with natural light or, or artificial light, whether we're surrounded by people or alone, you know, all these things have very significant effects on the way we think and the way students think. You know, in the chapter of the extended mind that looks at how spaces affect thinking, I write about things like filling our spaces with cues of identity and belonging. So displaying objects and items that remind us of who we are, what we're doing in that particular space, what our, our role is in that particular space, and also cues that remind us that we belong to valued or important groups, and making sure also that there aren't cues that effectively exclude the people who are in that space that tell them that they aren't welcome or that they don't belong there. And then I talk about things like the importance of having control and a sense of ownership over one space, which I think can happen in schools, but so often doesn't. You know, students are not encouraged to or even allowed to decorate their spaces or make them their own. So there's a lot of ways in which I think schools could be supporting students' intelligent, effective, and efficient thinking with space that we're not necessarily doing because we have this idea that thinking should be able to happen anywhere in any kind of space. And we're not recognizing the very important role that context and space plays in our thinking. And if our listeners could see us, they'd see a whole lot of head nodding right now. Um, <laughs> let's turn to the fourth category, social interaction. You write that another way to extend our thinking is by augmenting our minds with the minds of other people. Now to some people that could sound a little creepy. So what does that mean? How do we do that? And what sort of benefits does that bring? Well, we, we do live in a very individualistic culture and a culture that conceives of thinking as something that happens in one person's head and looks at intellectual and academic achievements as the product of a single mind. But I think that is an outdated and inaccurate way of thinking about thinking, especially in our world today where our problems are just so daunting and the expertise needed to address them is so specialized and the sheer amount of information that we're expected to process is so enormous. The single human brain is just not really able to keep up or do the job anymore. So we really need to think together, figure out ways to engage what scientists call collective intelligence, a level of intelligence that is greater than the sum of the individual people who are in the group. And the place to begin learning that is in school. I'm very aware as I talk about this that group work is difficult and it's especially difficult in our individualistic culture where we haven't really learned the practices and protocols that would support effective group thinking. But it's needed in the workplace and needed in our schools and I really think schools are the place to begin to figure this out. Train our students at thinking together in a group. My hope is that some of that disinclination or, or lack of enthusiasm for working in groups can dissipate as we learn how to do it and do it in a way that's fun, that is enjoyable, because human beings are really meant to think together. And this individualistic kind of thinking that we engage in is really kind of a, a more recent innovation. And so there can be a lot of joy and a lot of great expansion of oneself by being part of a group. So you just suggested that we're not 
necessarily taught as students or as kids how to lean on these beyond-the-brain resources that you describe in the extended mind. Most of our formal learning experiences, I think Greg and I can speak from experience as well, they rely on us memorizing things and, and studying hard and trying to focus as well as we can for as long as we can. Mm-hmm. How do we take a both-and approach here? What's it going to take, in your opinion, to put the extended mind into practice for learners at scale? That makes me think of another very common metaphor that we use to understand the brain, and that is the brain as muscle. The growth mindset is a really popular concept in education, and I I am myself a great admirer of Carol Dweck, the psychologist who, who came up with the growth mindset. And I've gotten some pushback from teachers and others who are very attached to this idea because they find it to be very empowering to let students know that with practice using their brain you know in a directed and effortful way students can get better their mental faculties can get stronger and i understand that and i endorse that but i think at the same time a growth mindset orientation that doesn't also accommodate and include extra neural resources is going to be limiting you know a lot of students have the idea as you were saying that the way to be successful to be effective as a student is to work your brain as hard as possible, memorize, study, sit in your chair until the work is done. And I just think that that often leads to a lot of frustration and helplessness on the part of students for whom that's not working as well as they would like. And what I love about the extended mind is that it opens up all these other options that you don't just have to sit there continuing to work your brain, you know, like it's a workhorse, you can actually get up and move your body, or you could take a walk outside, or you could, in some other way, alter your context in your space, or you could get on the phone with a friend or make an instructional video, all these things that are bringing in resources, again, from outside the brain, I think can be so helpful, and could help us move closer to something like what you were saying as a both and kind of approach where We recognize that the brain is absolutely central to thinking and learning, but that the brain can't do it on its own. And that we've devoted most of our energies in education to cultivating the brain and training the brain. And we need to have a kind of second education that would be teaching students how to use their outside the brain resources just as skillfully and as effectively as we expect them to use their brains. Annie, apart from Ryan, whom I'm sure when he was a teacher in the classroom was doing all of these things, right, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. If any of my former (laughs) students are listening, I apologize. (laughs) But can you give us maybe a colorful example of an educator or a place that's doing the types of things that you recommend? The person who comes to mind right away is someone who's actually working at the college level. And in fact, he's a, a Nobel Prize winner. I'm thinking of Carl Wieman, who's a a physics professor at Stanford, but also an education professor. His own work is now devoted mostly to improving physics education rather than working in the lab on his own discoveries. But what he found was that he had a very hard time teaching his physics undergraduates to think like physicists, to think like scientists. They remained sort of locked into this very narrow, rigid way of thinking that didn't really get beyond what they'd read in the textbook. And he found that even his graduate students, when they first arrived in his lab, were still that kind of narrow, inflexible thinkers. After just a year or two of working in his lab, they had become peer-like in the way that they were thinking, peers of women, in the sense that they were thinking like scientists, they were thinking like physicists. And 
women really puzzled over this transformation. Like what was going on here that allowed his graduate students to become physicists, you know, in full after just a year or two in the lab. And he decided, or he concluded, and the research backs him up on this, that it was really the social interaction, not even so much with him, the uh, the faculty member, as with the other graduate students. They were telling each other stories and anecdotes. They were debating and arguing with each other. They were teaching each other, you know, showing each other what they knew. And that these social processes were activating a kind of mental process that just wasn't happening in women's undergraduate classrooms. So he reinvented the way that he taught his undergraduate classes in order to better replicate what he saw going on in his lab with his graduate students and made that social element central to the way he was teaching physics, which is really a departure from the way physics is usually taught. Now he lectures briefly or he does a flipped classroom kind of thing where they watch a lecture outside of class and then they come in and they interact with each other in small groups with Weeman and his graduate students circulating the room and listening to what they're saying, what they're arguing about with each other and stepping in occasionally, but really letting that social piece, that thinking with people piece, do a lot of the work. Andy, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.anniemurphypaul, or engage with me on Twitter. I love uh, Twitter's a great uh, hive mind kind of innovation, a place of some collective intelligence, also some collective <laughs> stupidity, but <laughs> I do like Twitter, and I'm at, uh, at Annie Murphy Paul. And Annie, before we go, we have one more simple yet not so simple question for you. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I would want educators and parents to communicate to their students and kids that their brain is a wonderful organ, but also limited, and that everybody's brain is like that, and that they can figure out ways to give their brain help to do what they're asking their brains to do. And actually, the more skillfully and the more consciously that they can bring in those outside resources to help their brains, the better they can think. And it doesn't have to be up to just their brain alone. Thanks again to Annie Murphy-Paul, whose award-winning science writing appears in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and beyond. Her latest book, The Extended Mind, came out in June. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org tomorrow.